Hello and welcome to the Mindful Drinking Movement podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Betancourt. I am a hypnotherapist and a life coach, and I specialize in helping people understand their drinking habits and how to unravel them and to create self-awareness around harmful habits with alcohol. And today I have a guest, my first guest ever. I'm so excited. My guest today is Annabeth Moyerbell, who received her master's degree in drama therapy from New York University and has been a practicing clinician since 2014. She is the founder of Second Act, a nonprofit that uses theater and drama therapy to support those impacted by substance use. She has practiced and taught drama therapy nationally and internationally and is a commissioned playwright. She is currently on the advisory board at the Rhode Island Department of Health, helping to create and maintain the medical regulations for the nation's first legal harm reduction centers. She's also a senior advisor to Rhode Island Governor Daniel J. McKee on substance use, harm reduction, and recovery. Bess is also a personal friend of mine, and we went to um, an institute of higher education together where we made art and had therapy and healing modalities shoved in our faces more than we could digest, and here we are both doing work in the world with the tools we were taught. (laughs) Yep. Yay, Bess, welcome. Bess is in Boston. I'm in Timothy phase, most of you know, but thank you, technology. We're going to have a conversation today, and Bess, I would love for you just to... um, Give us a little bit of your backstory and how you came into the work that you now do. Yeah, thank you um, for the bio. It's nice to be reminded of all the things we do because I feel like every day you're in the weeds and it's nice to have narrative and reflection. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I... Oh, I found drama therapy when I was when we were at CIS together in San Francisco, and I was like, "Gosh, why didn't I think of this? Mm. Taking theater and using a clinical lens and using it as a way to reflect on yourself and interact with others and um, create healthier relationships and boundaries and better understanding of oneself in the world." It totally makes sense that theater is a perfect place to do all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so we, you know, we, our paths diverged and I went to New York and went to NYU and my first semester, um, at NYU, I had three friends die of drug related, um, accidents within that, those first three months of the semester. And um, prior to that, in 2012, I had lost my high school um, sweetheart to a fentanyl overdose. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was an isolated incident. I knew, you know, we had, like, taken drugs growing up and drank a good amount. Um, But I didn't realize um, what had kind of transpired after I left my hometown and that people were still heavily using drugs and um, and really struggling with it. And so in that first fall semester at NYU, when I had these consecutive deaths, I realized that like something bigger was going on um, in my community. And I and, you know, the, the opioid epidemic wasn't really talked about that openly mm-hmm. yet. Um, it was a little bit here and there in the news, but it wasn't as um, 
I feel like right now you can talk about it and, and almost anybody on the street knows what you're talking about mm-hmm. and has some mm-hmm. context for it. But I felt really confused and I was grieving pretty heavily and also, re- and it was all complicated by the fact that most of these were overdoses and, um, and I, you know, and, and some of us knew they were using and some of us didn't know they were using and we didn't understand like why all of this was kind of happening at the same time. And so I decided uh, when I was at NYU that I, I, I wanted to use my, you know, my time there to investigate what was going on in my community and think about how I could use what I was learning at school to address and support my, you know, the people in my community that were really hurting. And, um, and yeah, so I started on this journey of using theater, um, to address the, the opioid epidemic, um, and the impact that it had on communities. And I wrote a play that you helped me with all those years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we toured it and I got money from NYU to, to research it and perform it in front of lots of different audiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and really my work started in small community theaters, black box theaters, performing stories about addiction um, with actors that have li- lived experience, whether they were people in, in long-term recovery themselves or people that were um, that had been impacted by somebody else's substance use. And we just had to, we started having conversations with people using theater as, as a way in to have the conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I mean, f- fast forward to now, I've, I've sat with thousands and thousands of people in theaters all over the country, um, talking with them about what it's like to be impacted by substance use, um, whether it's one own, one's own or, or a family member. Um, and the organization has grown. You know, we don't just have live performances. We now have um, after-school programming. We have workshops with kids. Um, we're teaching artists in recovery, use theater to talk to kids about drug use, um, to help kids identify when something may be going on in a friend's life and how to talk to them, how to create healthy relationships and that kind of stuff. Um, and then we also have drama therapists that go out and work with people that are struggling with substance use or in, in early recovery. Um, so that's kind of all snowballed. I, when I came out of NYU, I, um, I started my nonprofit, which is funny to me now. I was like, oh, I'll just start a nonprofit. No big deal. You know? Mm-hmm. It's um, so easy. <laughs> <laughs> Let me start uh, off and- small. Oh my gosh, what a, yeah, what a huge mountain to climb. Um, it was a startup for five years, and then during the pandemic, another larger, much older nonprofit that did similar work came to me and um, and told me they were interested in, in merging, and so we merged those two nonprofits. And now we are a national nonprofit. We serve three or four states, um, and we, yeah, we make a, a much bigger impact than, than when I started, um, and it looks a lot different these days. I, I'm not out in the community as much as I used to be. I now mm-hmm. have kind of graduated into doing more policy work and more supporting um, and advising people, the, you know, the people making the decisions um, about how we address substance use, like, within this, you know, systematically, 
Um, so it's, but it's, for me, it's been really fun. Um, and I mean, and heartbreaking to move from, um, being somebody that was deeply impacted by substance use and, um, and starting to organize at the grassroots level and then working my way all the way up into, um, you know, working with, with governors and working with city health departments and state health departments, um, and just seeing how, how the way we address, um, these issues, uh, on the micro and macro has to be the same and has to be holistic and has to take a lot of patience and care. And, um, and along the way I've, um, I've lost more friends and, um, and I can talk a little bit more about how that's changed me in some pretty radical ways. Um, but the way I understood substance use and addiction and recovery in the last 10 years has, has radically shifted because of my work and because of, um, the people that I, I love and that I've, I've lost since, since 2014. Mm-hmm. Wow. Thank you for sharing all of that with us and yeah. what an amazing journey that you've been on and that you're still on and continues to evolve. Amazing. Um, there's like, I wanted to like stop you every five seconds and ask you a question, but then I wanted to hear what you had to say after, so I didn't stop or pause you. Um, I think I have so many questions, but I would like to kind of go back to the beginning of how you were speaking about using theater to help people heal and to like create some distance between themselves and what they were doing or what they are doing or what someone that they love is doing. Because when something is so close to us and it's so personal, it's you cannot see it objectively. And so could you um, just in like through the lens of your expertise and your experience kind of uh, like expand and expound on how storytelling and using theater in particular creates some distance for people to feel safe to see something objectively when otherwise you can't see something that's right under your nose or that is within you and around you, right? When you're immersed in it, you can't see it. So could you tell us how like using theater as that tool is, has become really effective? Yeah. So the way that therapeutic theater or even drama therapy works in general is very similar to how therapy works in that when you go in to do therapy, it's you, you know, if it's individual therapy, it's you and a therapist. And, um, and you have, you create, you know, your, your therapy lasts 45 minutes or 50 minutes or an hour, however long you're paying for. Um, there's a container that's set, like it starts at 9 a.m. and it ends at 10 a.m. I know that I'm going to be with this person in this room or on, in telehealth. Um, there's, you know, there's uh, a relationship between you and the person and they're just these, these like, um, these unwritten rules of, of how it works. I talk and then you listen and you may ask questions. There's all that kind of stuff, that ritual that's built into it that actually kind of helps you, helps to contain people. Mm. Um, and of course you're, you're exploring something different in therapy. And then what happens is the, the person who is in therapy usually projects onto the, the therapist, um, what, you know, they tell them stories or they will project people or relationships onto that therapist. And in the safety of that therapeutic relationship, they're able to like reflect and, and explore and, and grow. 
Um, and the same thing happens when we use live theater or, um, or film or a story. We have a story and then you project your own stuff, your own relationships onto that story. And then while you're either, you could be creating the story, you could be watching the story, you could be reading the story. Um, there's the, there's two things that are happening. You, you are taking action because you're watching the story and you're, you're like kind of seeing the action of the story play out. And you're also reflecting at the same time on, on whatever is happening um, and projecting. And, uh, and with theater, you have all of the rituals of like you go into the theater and you sit down and you're quiet and you clap and you laugh when it's funny and you cry when it's sad and you know it's going to be a certain amount of time and you know you applause at the end and you know then you leave the theater. You know, like there all that, that's, there's all that ritual baked into it too. So that helps contain people the same way it would when you go into a, a, a mm. you know, therapeutic um space with a, a mm. therapist and it's the same kind of projection and the same kind of action and reflection that's happening mm. um, drama therapy also like you said that creates that distance so oftentimes when we ask somebody to <clears throat> talk about either something that was traumatic or was really difficult for them to reflect on a past or a present situation um it, you know, it can bring up the feelings in the moment that are either present right now or from the past. And what happens with people is um, if those, if, if it's something really triggering, they, they will either dissociate where they'll kind of detach from the thing that they're talking about. And then they're not in the moment. They're really not able to process or they'll get so overwhelmed They'll get flooded with emotion, and then it's the same kind of thing. They may be talking, they may be telling the story, but they're so overwhelmed by the emotion, they're unable to do any reflecting um, or really, like, connecting to their body because there's, their body's so overwhelmed with mm -hmm. emotion. Mm -hmm. And when you use stories or metaphors or characters that are like me but not me, things that are close but have a little bit of that aesthetic distance is what we call it, mm -hmm. People are able to regulate their bodies and talk about, you know, if I if we're talking about something traumatic that happened, and I have you tell the story um, through a folktale that you really like that may be similar to the story. There's just you create that little bit of distance so that you can regulate your body while telling the story, and you're telling it through a metaphor. There may be something new that you're you're realizing through the, you know, this character's like you, but they do something a little bit different in their story. And how would that play out in your story? Does that, mm -hmm. does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so amazing. I mean, even as a theater person, and I consider theater and most, if not all forms of art, a type of therapy, I've not made that direct correlation of like, this is actually a therapy. Like it has a contained time. It has a scene. It has ritual to it, as you say. Like I have, thank you for um, that learning for myself because like I've not drawn that direct correlation. And what you say, what you said is really important. It's like it has a beginning and an end kind of a situation. It's like you're not living this traumatic experience. You have permission 
to be in this space at this time to feel whatever you may feel and whatever may come up for you and to allow it to be processed to move through the body knowing that this isn't a permanent state, right? This is like a fixed time and place for permission to feel or to experience or to um, self-reflect. So I think uh -huh. that's a really important piece and I think that's why um, people avoid therapy for various reasons, but this might be one of them. And if, um, to those of you who are listening to this piece, I just want to then like reiterate that therapy is designed to, or in art forms that are therapeutic are designed to create a moment of time that is safe. So to avoid it altogether, because we think it kind I think there's like a, um, there's a fear that therapy just like takes the lid off of you and then you're just like freewheeling and like you, you can't function in society. But um, from, I think from what we're saying and like um, expanding on, I want to encourage people to explore modes of um, modalities of healing art or therapy that you feel called to, that it's not going to disrupt your life. It allows you a place to process when in, you know, societal norms don't allow for us to even have fucking feelings you know like you can't even cry in public without somebody making something wrong about it you know what I mean I think that that is so problematic for us as human beings like people we're so afraid of each other's feelings because we feel like we have to caretake or make it go away or it makes us uncomfortable but that is part of the problem that is why people hide and then need to go self-medicate or turn to a substance or turn to alcohol to make themselves feel better it's like we're not even we're not it's not okay to process your feelings. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah. And the world is a really scary place. You know, it's like, it's very obvious why right now it's scary, particularly for some people. And it's totally reasonable to, um, to have big feelings and to feel like it's not safe to express them or feel like if you do start expressing them, you'll unravel. Um, and to want to numb out or to feel better with drugs or alcohol, like totally, it's totally reasonable exactly. to want to feel better. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's, yeah. And I think, that, you know, a good therapist will help to set up whatever ritual or containment is needed to help you be in the session and then to help kind of put you back together so you can go live your life because, mm. you know, I, I'm I'm one to cry on the train, but I can't tr cry on every train to work every day. Like that's not well <laughs> either, you know. No. Um, but uh, and and theater and the creative arts do that too in ritual. They give you a place to kind of contain that, so that you can then still go on to to be a wife or to be a mom or mm -hmm. to be to work in your job or whatever. And that's mm -hmm. that's the other piece about drama therapy is a lot of it is um uses role theory and in role theory it's um so we're all made of, of lots of different roles and they change depending on what situation we're in who we're interacting with um what you know how old we are mm -hmm. um, where we are in our life journey and somebody who may be you know struggling with a mental health diagnosis or even like a physical diagnosis like cancer um, or who has some deep trauma, they often have a pretty small role repertoire. So mm -hmm. they really struggle to go outside of 
being the sick one or being the person, you know, the addict. And I don't use those, that, those terms, Neither but, do I. Mm-hmm. um, yeah, but they, or, or being the victim or whatever, you know, and, and somebody that's, that's pretty healthy has a large repertoire, role repertoire, you know, they're, um, they're a boss and they're a sister and they're a volunteer and they're a wife and they're, you know, a friend and all of those things. And they're able to kind of cycle through those roles as needed to meet the moment. Um, and they have a healthy, you know, and they have like kind of a healthy and complex and robust understanding of what those roles mean in relationship to other people. Mm-hmm. And so drama therapy, the other thing that drama therapists will do or that, that, drama does it is it helps us think about the roles we play how they're in relationship to each other are there any roles that are getting in our way and not allowing us to get the things we want or the things we need or the things that will make us happy Mm. um, or keeping us from relationship and theater and drama therapy kind of help open you up so you can try on different roles or get rid of roles that aren't serving you or expand your roles to meet whatever moment you're in. Mm-hmm. That this is a really important understanding. I teach this as well, or I coach on this. It's like our identity is flexible and fluctuates and has components to it. It's not a fixed hat or label. And the parts of us that self-medicate or the parts of us that use are attached to certain facets of one's identity. And in strongly identifying with that part of ourselves, we are we are reinforcing that that's who we are, right? Who we are in quotes. That's what we do because we only do things that we self-identify with. So what you're saying is super relevant because we need to be able to see ourselves in a broader perspective that we are more than a habit or we are more than an addiction. It's actually just a, a part of us that is attached to that habit or that addiction. Um, so drama, drama therapy is an amazing way to help yourself or help try on different ways that you feel, oh my gosh, that is like a part of me. I haven't been familiar with that part of me in a long time. It's like soul fragmentation as well. You know, it's like going back and reclaiming parts of ourselves that we're familiar with that didn't get nurtured along the journey of life that got left behind or that got traumatized or that got dropped off or were used as like um, just at for a certain place in time or as a way to survive. So I love that you said like a healthier person. I don't think anyone's like completely healthy around it. I don't know anybody like that. But like, <laughs> no, no, no. A healthier um, state of being is being able to identify yourself in different ways and to be able to use that role accordingly in life in a way that best serves you. Is that mm-hmm. what you're also saying? Yeah. Yeah. Like an important part of breaking free from addiction addiction is to help heal that part of you that is attached to the addiction itself because it's not all of oneself. It's not all of who you are. It's a piece and a part of who you are and that is the piece and the part that wants attention, that needs healing, that needs presence. That That's the part that wants to cry on the train. That's the part that wants to sit in a dark theater and have snot coming out of your face and to be able to be like now I can let this go I can this part of me is moved this energy that was stuck in me is now being released in some way because I've been able to see something or witness something or experience something that literally moved me yeah 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 okay 
I would love to ask you about um, your work with harm reduction and how, mm -hmm. um, when we were talking earlier before I was recording, I loved what you were saying about the macro and micro levels of harm reduction and how policy, the way we think about it and how policy changes actually has a trickle down effect to the way that we actually feel about it as individuals. Can you expand on yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I started with, um, with me and my, my friends and my community, how, how did drug use impact us? Um, and how did being silent or not asking for help when help was needed, um, you know, lead to death and kind of destruction of people's lives? Um, and, and now, you know, 10 years later, I, you know, I'm kind of working my way up the chain um, and helped pass the first um, national, uh, the first bill in this country to um, legalize a harm reduction center pilot in the state of Rhode Island. Um, and that is a place where people can um, come with their own, like, pre, um, you know, they, they come with their own drugs. They're not given drugs, but they, they bring their own illicit drugs, and they're able to use in a place that uh, that is safe and is clean and where somebody's taking care of them and just making sure that they don't overdose and, and is offering them, you know, the tools to use the drugs that are, that are clean um, so as not to transmit disease. Um, and that, and, you know, that those ways of, of meeting people is so vastly different than, uh, than the, the drug war and how this country has really, um, um, been, yeah, been in relationship with people that use drugs. Um, and what I, what I see, and we, we talk about this kind of parallel process as therapists, a lot of times what we see in our patients or in our clients, the, um, dysregulation or, um, like relationship rupture or chaos or that, that kind of stuff that's ha happening with them, we'll see it reflected in the hospital that they're getting treated at, or we'll see it in the clinic that they're getting treated at. Like the clinic is going through a change or is chaotic or the hospital is, it, something's going on and it often at times is reflected in the people. Mm -hmm. And so what we know, you know, the way that we have approached substance use um, in this country is, um, is through a punitive carceral lens and approach in that um, drugs are illegal and except for some of them and um, and if you do drugs and if you do the ones that are illegal um, you go to jail um, because it's bad because you're bad for doing them mm. and if you really and a lot of you know you know, folks that are really deeply struggling with substance use um, often have a lot of symptoms that also will lead to incarceration. Um, I mean, not only is like using an illegal substance like out on the streets, you can, you know, if you get caught, you'll get put in jail um, or get arrested. But um, there are other things like um, like stealing or like li or lying or um, uh, you know, driving under the influence, all of those, those things are symptoms of, of substance use mm -hmm. disorder. Um, and all of those things are, are punished as well. Right. Um, and so what, 
what that says to people, just generally speaking, is um, if you do those things, you're bad and you have to be put away. And so it also teaches people that like, you can't ask for help and that you're a bad person um, and that you'll just be punished. And so people learn to lie. You know, Mm -hmm. we talk about like people who are deeply struggling with drugs oftentimes lie Mm -hmm. about their use or, and and then like will lie to themselves, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? Um, Oh, this isn't that big of a problem. Um, Because if you believe that what you're doing is bad and you're a bad person, then it's deeply painful and unsafe to be honest about what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, so I've, I've been thinking a lot more and working a lot more in, in like in the policy realm. Cause if we can, if we can move to more compassionate and understanding ways of addressing the issue on the bigger scale, like allowing people to come in and use their illicit drugs in safe spaces, then they're more likely to ask for help because they because now they see that like okay well um, I even though I am using drugs somebody still wants me to be safe somebody still wants me to um, to not contract a disease or to get in trouble with police and and that really like shifts the way that people think about themselves and think about other people. Um, I, I would love to see a, um, a, a complete end to the prohibition on drugs. I think particularly in this country, our, our drug supply is completely poisoned. So it's, it's just really dangerous to use illicit drugs right now. Um, and, and that is a, a big piece of that is because they're not regulated and nobody's like paying attention to whether or not they have fentanyl in them. And you can't, you know, unless you have testing um, strips yourself or testing your drugs, um, there's not, it's, it's harder to stay safe and reduce harm mm-hmm. um, and de- and, you know, and ultimately death. So I think it's, yeah, there's, what happens above trickles down in that way. If we look at drugs as bad and people who use drugs are bad and, and, and we believe that they should be in jail and should be put away and be silenced, um, and, and, um, and deserve to be punished. Then of course we're going to punish our loved ones for using. And of course we're going to punish ourselves for using. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah. And I feel like, whenever I was treating people struggling with addiction, um, even now that, you know, of course the way we understand ourselves is, is mirrored in how the world approaches us and understands us, mm-hmm. you know? And so the, the individual work is really important. And of course you can kind of break out of those patterns or, or find more self-compassion, but if it's also not done like in the bigger on on a bigger scale, um, then you're still going to be met with that stigma, um, and punishment and silencing when you step outside your door, no Mm -hmm. matter how much self-work you've done. So both things have to be, um, changed for us to like, like find real kind of liberation. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also, I have, again, I have so many questions. (laughs) 
forgot them. Um, I have, we have like five minutes just because I have to go get all my millions of children. Um, yeah. But I feel like I could talk to you for a while. Um, why don't we close? This is like also fascinating what you're saying. And I just like love hearing your perspective on things. And especially because you've been in this work for like over a decade now, it's just you're, it's, you're really infused with so much knowing from different angles. So I, I love hearing from someone like you who can speak from very personal experience, but then also more um, like national, global experience of what needs to happen to us, change collectively, how we need to change collectively and how we can effectively change from on an internal um, level as well. You're right, both are important and they're both equal, I would say, because what happens on the micro goes up to the macro and vice versa. Mm -hmm. um, for our listeners, who mainly I believe are listening for help with alcohol use disorder or excessive drinking habits, how might you suggest introducing harm reduction techniques or applying the harm reduction model to learning how to drink less? Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if they're interested in drinking less, um, I, yeah, I, I think that, like, trying to go, for a lot of people, try, um, full abstinence is really difficult, um, you know, quitting cold turkey is really difficult and also and isn't necessarily like the gold standard of a healthy life mm -hmm. um there are t there are millions of people in this country that are um that are in recovery and the majority of them are not fully abstinent but still claim recovery mm -hmm. um so most people either don't use the drugs their drug of choice that they know that they just don't have any control over when they use and or practice moderation. Um, so I think first of all, figuring out like, okay, what, like, let me like trying different, different avenues, um, and fe feeling out what works for you makes, makes the most sense and allowing yourself, um, to, to mess up and not get it right the first time. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things about, and I, I have stopped using the word relapse, but have started using the word reoccurrence. Mm -hmm. If you see that you're having a reoccurrence of symptoms, um, you're drinking more or using more, or you had a night where you like went out and, and drank a little bit too much and are sick the next day. Um, checking in with yourself and figuring out instead of punishing yourself and, and, you know, just like deciding like, Oh, I, I fucked up. I did it, you know, like I was on this path and I totally fucked it up. But, um, what can this reoccurrence actually teach me about where I'm at right now? Um, and, and I feel like that kind of having self-compassion for those moments that feel like failure and, and not only compassion, but inquiry and like, and curiosity about what 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 led to that was it something that happened that day was it a way that I approached drinking that night was it who I was around was it what I was drinking you know like all of those um, was it something yeah was it something that happened to me that day or during the drinking that spurred um, that spurred this way of interacting with the drinking that I really am like don't want um, 
a way that I don't want to be interacting. Um, so I feel like um, those ways, and 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 then to start, you know, I, harm reduction um, is like tiptoeing into just reducing harm. So I feel like starting slowly. If if we're talking about alcohol, like okay. Um, where do I want to start reducing harm? I do if I'm drinking, am I making sure that I am um, eating before I'm drinking? Am I making sure that I'm not going to be using a car when I'm drinking? Am I gonna, you know, um, make sure that I'm drinking water before I go to bed, or even like drink or eating after I'm drinking? Like those little steps, I feel like the the like baby stepping in to me has always felt like. Um, a more approachable and easier way to go about it rather than um, than than like swinging full into abstinence or swinging full into like a new routine that I'm just like trying to figure out how I you know how, what works for me um, does that make sense mm -hmm, absolutely I'm of the same philosophy and mostly because our nervous system cannot handle drastic and dramatic change. It causes a shock, right, that then the body and the mind rebel against, which is why instant diets and eliminations and, like, those types of things just really backfire and they don't do well. They're not sustainable for the long term. But if you can implement small change in a positive direction in a way that feels good and adaptable, baby steps, small micro habits – those add up. That is like the 1% difference that you give yourself every day that you can look back over a year and be like, wow, it's actually quite different than it, um, this stretch of time doing this small thing over a distance of time has given me the experience of real change. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes the most sense. And then just not beating yourself up when you slide back into a habit that you didn't want to. You know, mm -hmm. just like I said, being curious about like, okay, why did that happen? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As opposed to like, oh, fuck, that happened. And I, you know, why did I do that? And I, you know, now it's ruined. Now I've ruined everything. All of those, you know, all of those thoughts. Those mean things we say to ourselves, yeah. right? And yeah. it's really just, it's some part of us that does those things that that's where we need to look right? We can ask ourselves, what part of me did that? <laughs> what part of me felt that I needed to drink to excess till three in the morning and stay up forever? What, what, what part of me was, do I need to access so I can affect more deep healing so that I don't do that moving forward or that that reoccurrence looks smaller or more tame moving forward? Right. Yeah, best tell. Thank you so much. I want to stay and talk to you, but I have mother yeah. duties. Um, <laughs> tell people where they can find more about you, learn more about you, and your work. And I'll put and I'll put your show note or your links to your socials and your work and everything in the show notes, so you can look there. But yeah, tell us, please. Yeah, um, the organization is called Second Act um, for lots of reasons, mm -hmm. and so we are Second Act. Dot org is our website, and then we are second act on all of our socials. 
Um, and there's, we have some really great, um, short, like one minute films on YouTube that I can send you that are, um, encouraging people to carry and get trained in Narcan, which is the reversal drug for an opioid overdose. Um, so you can kind of get a feel of what our work is like mm-hmm. through our short films. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll send you some of that, but, um, but yeah, Facebook and Instagram, we are second act and then our website. Yay, thank you. Oh, thank you, Beth. My guest has been Anna Beth Moyerville, and she's awesome, and I love her, and we love all of you, and if you are someone who is suffering, please do whatever you can to seek help in a way that feels safe and in alignment with with what you need. Um, yeah, come forward because you're loved, and everybody's somebody's baby. You know, I always think that when I'm on the train and I see people just looking so sad or down or dire or stressed. I'm like, that is someone's baby. That uh-huh. old man who is visibly wasted, that is somebody's uh-huh. baby. And like what happens in the trajectory of our lives when, you know, we feel like nobody cares about us or that we're shamed into hiding or that we have to go away because of what we're doing. I feel like your work is really important for letting people know that you are still a human being no matter what you're doing and you deserve care and you deserve respect and you deserve compassion. And if you can't give it to yourself, there are many organizations and places and work like that you're doing and that I'm doing that you can get it from instead if you can't get it from those who are closest to you or from you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Beth. I love you. I love you too. So nice to see you. Yay.